Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our mind. Today you're listening to Let's Talk Black Knowing, a show that honours the intellectual sovereignty of black fellows and amplifies the power of black knowledge. And in this, the 20th year of Let's Talk, this is your host, Professor Chelsea Wadigo and Dr David Singh. Good morning. Thank you for joining Let's Talk Black Knowing. This is Chelsea Wadigo and I'm joined as usual with my co-host, Dr. David the Settler Singh. Good morning. Um, before we get into today's show, uh, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we're recording from this morning, but also the land in which you're listening from wherever that may be. Now, today is a very special yarn, um, one I'm excited to have, um, you know, at Kurumba Institute, we're talking about the power of black knowing and that our, our knowledges are living, embodied, excellent and essential to real world change and that our people have long been powerful in their knowing and that knowing's found in the hearts and homes of our people. And today we get to have a conversation about um, a man who epitomises black power um, and a story that I heard yarns about um, and that I'm excited to be able to have this conversation about the life and the legacy of Pastor Don Brady. Mm. And we are very, very fortunate to have his son, Uncle Graham Brady, joining us for this yarn this morning. How are you, Uncle Graham? I'm well. I'm well, Chelsea. How are you, David? Hey, Uncle. Thank you for joining us. Now, you know, tradition in uh, Let's Talk uh, here is, before we get into it, if you could uh, introduce for our listeners a bit about who you are, where you're from. Yes, uh, my name's Graham Brady. Um, I, I was born over the border. No, never grew up over the border in Lismore. Mm. Yeah, Kabawi Mission. And um, that was when mum and dad was, was moving around in the uh, early days of their ministry. That was with the AIM church. But I grew up in Sherbrooke, Palm Island and Brisbane. But uh, where our homeland, our essence of our family, we are Gogo Yalangi, Western Gogo Yalangi, and we are also Pirapira, grandmother side, Halali, mum side, Batela. We go there with that other great granny, go to Batela. We very much spread out. We consider ourselves relations right throughout um, mm. the East Coast. We have relations all up and down the East Coast. So uh, we, we don't particularly come from one specific area. We come from a very uh, broad and variety of lands, peoples, and that's what makes uh, Aboriginal um, relationships unique. Mm. So uh, I'm not just from one particular per, uh, place, and we I consider myself related to many, many people. Mm-hmm. No, that's probably the best way I can describe myself. And despite the dispossessing efforts of colonisation, particularly here in the state of Queensland, mob here, uh, them connections still strong. There was a piece of, I don't know if you would call it legislation, but it was an idea, especially with the White Australia policy back in the 40s, 30s and 40s. I think it even went back to the uh, 20s. That uh, They were considering Aboriginal people as a dying race. Mm. You know, and they, they never really understood our re- resilience. They never really understood our connection to country, never understood our, the way our families operate and how mm. our understanding for one another operated. So they considered us as a dying race. And the uh, word at the time, I think uh, people in their 80s and 70s would remember this. They called it the dying pillow. Mm. And what the dying pillow was, let us smooth it out because this race is dying out now. So let us make it comfortable for them to pass into oblivion or to pass into history. But uh, it was still here. <laughs> 
silly. I remember reading Thomas Blake's A Dumping Ground about Cherbourg and yes. there was a quote in there from I think it was Aunty Cathy Fisher and she said they thought they were disbanding all the tribes but what they yeah. did is made one big tribe. My word. It's, it's, it's a funny thing because the relationship between um, Indigenous peoples all over the world mm. is that it's one of family orientation. And uh, because we treat ourselves as human beings, there was never any any um, uh, 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 segregation between the mob. We all considered ourselves relations and even our uh, relations overseas, other Indigenous peoples overseas, they are brothers and sisters to us because that's how we greet each other. Hello, brother. Hello, sister. Mm. And uh, I can go into that there, but I'll pull up there. But that is the human being and humanistic way how our people always lived and treated one another. Uh, and, you know, we talk a lot about black humanity and, and, and you know, even in the yarns we've had, um, and you'll hear, like, when we're dealing with the tragedy of, of deaths at the hands of the state, we have families saying, we want to be seen as human. And despite all the dehumanising efforts, there is a black humanity that persists in the face of this. Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, it prevails. Yeah. Um, prevails and, and, and it's never let up. It actually got more potent. <laughs> and you said to yourself, like, because we see ourselves as human. That's what Bama means. See, we Bama people up here, E-A-M-A, and uh, what that translates into its rawest form, it means a human being person. That's what Bama means, human being. Now, we're very excited because biggest Brady mob going to be in town this week um, because this Friday is the release of the book of your father's legacy, Yelanya. Yalanya. 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 I was practicing too. Yalanya. I've got to decolonize my tongue. Um, Yalanya. And it means? It means that's the way it was. That's the way it is. It's like that. When when Blackwater talk to one another, they say, they they put out a question to, to get an answer and for that answer, the broadest way to say, well, that's the way it is. That's the way uh, um, what things turned out to be. So Yalanya means exactly that. This is how it turned out to be. This is what happened, and this is the product of it. Now, I want to ask, how did this happen, this book? How did it come to life? And can you tell us a bit about um, the motivation and, and yeah, how, how, how this has been in the, in the makings? The making was when I when for myself as an individual, it, it, it is when I was born. It actually, you know, when I came into existence, I just was part of what was already started. We had um, mum and dad who, were, who, who are our parents and they brought us into an existence that was, was already uh, put out for us. We could not, as children, we could not, um, alter or change anything, we had to fit into it. And the existence, as we all know, is when uh, colonisation began, uh, British Empire expansion, we have the, uh, uh, the, the policies and the government decisions about our people. So that's what we were born into and that's when this is how this book began. Mm. So we have to put it on a realistic scale, is that from my point of view, it all happened when I began, when I, uh, when I was born, took my first breath. I was born into this. Mm. Mm. So they... the book is mm. part of our being. And it, it will tell yarns about our, um, my brothers and sisters, how we saw through our eyes, 
and how many other people um, uh, sort of was part of this expansion. And when you said that from the outset, the expansion of knowledge, that's what it is. We are all knowledge givers and, and receivers, and uh, knowledge is valuable. And we've always seen that for what it was, and we want to be able to transfer that knowledge from what we experienced, and it's come out, come out in this book, Yalanya. Mm-hmm. David's been carrying around this little binder. Can you tell this yarn, <laughs> David, about? Um, yes, Uncle. Um, I was sitting in a park attending a, an event. It was a black queer mob, and I'm sitting next to Uncle Shane Coghill, and he thrusts this document into my hand and says to me, here, your students need to know about this man. And I look at the document, and it's the Aboriginal flag, and there's a f- somebody in the middle, and it's entitled, Past the Don Brady, A Life in Media. And I'm supposed to be focusing on the black queer event, but instead I'm starting to read the document, which is full of press cuttings about your father. And you've written the foreword there, Uncle. Am um, I sitting in South Brisbane in a park? In a park. <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously. That's where knowledge is shared. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm with my wife, and then she, she starts looking over my shoulder, and she starts reading the press cuttings. And we've just got this wonderful picture of your dad. And at the very beginning, when you write the foreword, Uncle, you describe the way your dad was known at the time. And I'll just read some of them. Park pastor, West End Methodist church lay worker, island minister, Aboriginal churchman, Palm Island-born Aboriginal, the Martin Luther King of the Aboriginal race. Mm-hmm. I could go on. There were so many I want to go to Punching Pasta. <laughs> Oh, well, go to it. Can you tell the yarn of the how it became known as the? I remember hearing the story from um, I think Aunty Bubby Smith, bless her, when I was seventeen yes. year old in first yeah, year of my uni. Sister. Yeah, yeah, and, and she'd tell the story of the punching pastor. Can you tell us how he became known as the punching pastor? Yeah, he was labelled that through the media, mm. and um, what what Dad was about. See, see, um, when uh, 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 social events. Tribal Council was, was very deadly back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s in setting up um, the, the help, the, the inaugural setup of the services, but also the social um, aspects of, of community, especially there in Brisbane, because we've got to remember um, after referendum, a lot of people started flooding into the cities mm. and the towns, you know, thereabouts. So we had a lot of people coming off reserves, coming off fringe dwelling, coming off um, uh, our missions. And all, all this was happening. So when they were coming, it's a whole new mindset. You come in from the bush and you hit the city and you got divided on how to behave because that's one of the aspects of being Aboriginal. You've you, you got to behave in, 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 in a respectful manner. So what um, our dad done, he, with the youth, because we abuse crime today, there's no different back then. We have been all youth, nothing to do, no job. It's ran away from the mission, that had to give them something to do. And what, and what was set up by the uh, tribal council was uh, a, a footy team called, and we lent our name, Yalanji, mm. Yalanji football team, Yalanji netball team, Yalanji boxing team. Now, I think the media grabbed that there because he also was very, see, our dad was an ex-boxer. <laughs> and um, he would be... He would not um, be easily intimidated. And, and there was times when old dad had to use his fists mm. because of the racism that existed there, blatant racism. Mm. There were times. So, you know, um, everybody knows, especially uh, all the 60-plus and 70-plus people, we couldn't walk into any public space or public building without being looked down upon. Now, that would get on anybody's back. 
and especially when you're an enlightened person who who is beginning to understand their rights. Bearing in mind, you, mm. you bring in that same law or the same understanding from where you come from, small town, rural town, from the bush, and you trying to live up to your abnormality in this racist environment. So sometimes dad had to use his force and the media grabbed that. They never ever seen a pastor. They always saw, saw clergymen as passive, meek, mild, mm. you know, turn the other cheek. Sometimes dad didn't. Mm. And the media grabbed it and splashed that. It never came from us. We never called that a bunchy father <laughs> and neither did the community. The, the media. What I find funny is what I think they meant as a slur actually to me is like a badge of honour anyway. Um. It very well could be. <laughs> it turned into it because um, it, 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 it's part of the, the, what, what, what uh, eventuated because Aboriginal people, you know, you know, ever since the referendum change, ever since the um, uh, uh, the the the, the uh, dispossessions, what was happening on the uh, on, on in the missions and reserves, people were educating themselves, and the education, like anything, we are all people. We talk to one another. There was unity back then in the sixties and seventies. I've got to talk from my standpoint because that's what I remember. Unity existed, and unity was n- was not always there. Unity had to be created, mm. and the unity was this: that we stand as one people, that we identify as one people, and that we try to better our people's lives. Because you've got to bring it to what it is. It was a whole change of our existence. We could not allow that to just go along and have turn our lives upside down our laws upside down, our authority for country upside down. No, we made a stand. And that was when all this consciousness started to happen. And ironically enough, the consciousness of the 1960s was worldwide. Mm-hmm. White fellas too, young white uh, students and people all over the world, they, the consciousness of them was saying, this regime is very oppressive. They want to change too. So the irony of it all, the consciousness of our people was also developing, and it developed into a unity. Mm. As I said before, unity um, does not come about um, by by chance. It is created, and that's what we've done. We created unity through the understanding of our people and the development of awareness. Mm. And that consciousness at that time was not captured by the anthropologists in their knowing of the black experience and all their supposed authority. That consciousness, and what I, I love drawing upon black song lyrics, is because they capture with far more sophistication a black consciousness than any scholarly text that has ever been written about us. And as I was hearing you talk about even the phenomena of mob moving from the bush to the city, I immediately think of Brisbane Blacks mop and the dropouts, streets of Tamworth, this theorising about black fellows making sense of the violence of the yeah. city, you know? Yeah. That's a real good point because it brings, it brings to my memory what my, uh, my brother Joe Geyer said mm-hmm. with, the, with um, what happened with the voice. Yeah, that's, that's all. It's still current in the minds of people, see? And what happened with the voice, you know, it could have been a deflative type of uh, thing, made everybody feel a little bit down and whatever. But uh, Joe Guy said this to me, brother said this to me, voice, we've always had a voice. It was through our songs, mm. the, the lyrics that were written, you know, in songs. And it was the musicians that were still carrying on the voice. And I said to him, brother, anyway, there. And he said, have a look at it. The voice is still being carried. 
and it's us musicians that are carrying that voice. So in a way, the voice has never died. It will always be carried on. You know, uh, music is a universal language. Everybody relates to it. And uh, for those who, who carry a message, song and dance and ceremony is the best way to carry that message. I want to speak more about this black consciousness. Um, and I, I, I want to speak about, look, think about it then and, and where, where you think it's at now. But I'm curious in, in reading about um, Uncle Don's life and when I read one of the, the accounts, it talks about he had a church or fellowship where he went to the United States mm. and he um, went there to study, and, and I quote, <laughs> the integration of Indigenous peoples. But on his return is when he, it's it written that he would then be involved in establishing the Brisbane Tribal Council. Mm. His actions didn't seem to focus on the integration of Indigenous peoples, but rather the mm. emancipation <laughs> of Indigenous peoples. Was it something about that trip to the United States that did something for yeah, that black yeah. consciousness? Yeah, yeah, it's like anything. There's no tipping point. There are things that are surrounded that actually lead you to a way of let's try this, let's try that. It's because of the um, the environment and the system that we live under. And I've got to go back to the mob because this is a unified uh, thinking. We was all thinking the same thing. When Dad goes overseas there, he sees what's happening over there with them First Nations people in Fiji, New Zealand, Cook Island, um, America. And even Inuit people, Eskimo people, and uh, we go, Ainu people, uh, Japan. It was the same oppressive regime and oppressive in the sense of this, is that it tried to, to change our human way. We could not fit into these things. So Dad sees this firsthand and said, these ones here are on the same thought and page as I am. He comes back and says, you know what them black fellas over there, Negro people, you know what them, them um, Aboriginal people there, Sioux people, Dakota people, uh, he, he sat down with a couple of them. They think they are just like us. What they was doing back then, we got to understand that America got 400 years on us. Where we talk about our 200-year past, well, there, 400, they'll be going to 500 years. So you can understand the absorption that they went through, how they, their lifestyles were changed, how they were absorbed into a, 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 a violent system because that, that absorption had to be, they had to come in under that, that uh, system through violence. They had it longer than we did. So they had time, they had more time to formulate our ideas and ways of trying to live within the system. Thus, the treaties, thus the um, uh, uh, culmination of, um, of getting into parliaments and all this. Dad sees this back in 1967, uh, so, yeah, 67, 66, and he says it's exactly the same here. He comes back from America brimming with all this, this, these ideas and thoughts going through his head. He said it like this, oh, Dad, he said, I had a vision, and that vision told me I will do something new. When he comes back, he talks with one of the community here. I won't spill the beans because it's in the book. But he started talking to prominent ones here in uh, uh, Brisbane, and they are already at work doing it. So to his surprise, what he was thinking there, they was already doing it here. 
setting it up and thus the tribal council. And it's worth remembering, Uncle, at the same time when he comes back, there are neighbours complaining about mob turning up at his house in Acacia Ridge. They're trying to close down the social club because of the dances on a Saturday night. All the yeah. while he's fighting on all fronts. Special oh, branches, yeah, yeah. police surveillance. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's your he's, yeah, file. Wow. Over a thousand, I think, 1,600 pages, you know, but... Um, that's that's in our under understanding that there are people who you know Asia being what Asia are uh, uh, real Dorises mm -hmm. they they want to find everybody's life and you know try to make sense and uh, the national security thing um, that was considered a threat mm. that is uh, yeah that, that is uh, life um, uh, 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 well, bluntly uh, someone put a bomb in his car. Hmm. And they wanted to assassinate that, so I, I don't know. We'll we'll take it for what it is because uh, because uh, that bomb woke me woke us all up. Hmm. Yeah, woke us all up early hours of the morning, and we run out and there's the car door just blowing out and smoke coming out of the car. So uh, hmm. yeah, that's um, what what happened with people think seeing Aboriginal people starting to organise. And I think um, they thought we was a bit threatening, and thus the racism, which was always there, but the racism was at its peak because, uh, oh, mate, it's, I don't know if you are old enough to remember, but um, being black was, you never had it, you don't have an entry ticket to any anything. Mm. There, there is no place where you are welcome. And that is what happened. And a lot of our black people, especially our older ones, they succumb to that and they become the ones that we know to say, yes, boss, no, boss, mm. because of the oppression. It, it really wore them down. Well, uh, there were some people who didn't wore down and we fought back. Mm. That, um, you know, when you talked about the places you denied entry to, but there's also the consequence of those who insist on a black humanity, a, a critical black consciousness, that the places that you were once welcomed into, you then are asked to leave. And I remember reading one account of um, Pastor Don, I think it was maybe 71 protest against the Queensland um, Parliament around um, the, the Act. And yep. I think it was then, I'm not too sure I got it wrong, um, but he burned the, the Act, the piece of paper. And well, a lot of black fellas, they didn't know they were living under the Act. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a hidden, uh, it was a hidden legislation that has been in existence for over ninety years. Mm. Rum and opium come out of that, is because see, uh, the Rum and Opium Act was formulated around colonies. You got to keep people, uh, you know, off the grog. You got to keep the Chinese off the, you know, uh, the the import of opium and all that. So they derive an act, this is the, the Colonisation Act, to make sure that the colony, the people who are building the colonies. Uh, 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 drunk and stoned. Well, they took that same act and applied it to us, but just reworked it to make it fit that we are not, we are not human. Mm. That's where it came out of. Remember, flora and fauna. That's what we were classed as, and the act made sure that we we um, were kept like that. We had no right to voice our opinion because we weren't even seen as human. Mm. So that's where the act derived from. 
uh, the filthy piece of legislation that came through had to be dealt with. And Dad revealed it for what it was and burned it for what it what it became. Mm. And he was. Um, I read. I think the framing was that the um, the Brisbane Central Methodist uh, Mission relieved him of his duties after yes. that stance. I have heard stories of mob who lived under the Act who didn't understand they were under the Act, and oh, no. and and it was striking to me because it governed every aspect of, of Blackfellas' lives: marriage, wages, yes. movement, all yes. of this stuff. And I remember speaking to people. We just thought that's how it was. We didn't know. Well, well, when something isn't revealed to you. Things become uh, seem like normal. Mm. Oh, this is what this our white fellow want us to live, you know. So you go along. That's what I said. Yes, boss. No, boss. And and you got to forgive those ones of the time. They didn't understand what piece of legislation that was thickly moulded to keep them in their place, mm. keep us in their place. Yeah, I'm really curious about um, the relationship mob have with Christianity. Um, yeah. and, and I'm really curious about where you stand. And I, I asked that genuinely, I, you know, grew up my grandfather, Alan Wanigo, he was a lay pastor around Fingal. Mm. Um, yeah. we also watched the, the US civil rights movies mm-hmm. where the black churches were instrumental in the fight for black rights over there. And I was always curious about the relationship between the church here and Christianity for mob in relation to our rights. And, you know, and I mob despise the church hmm. with good reason mm. that, you know, um, mm. and I'm curious in terms of your upbringing and, and where you sit in terms of how you think about the relationship between Christianity and spirituality and black rights and consciousness. Biggest well, questions. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. The fundamental of any faith is that it is grounded in, in the belief that uh, you are worthy, there is a higher source, there's a higher power, we are subjected to the creator and that is where our authority comes from. So when white fella come here with Christianity, we also had our beliefs and a lot of that was centered around a creator and the creator is what we, who we serve. This is how, because all ceremonies were part of the worship of a creator. So when Christianity comes, we see the similarities there. So they made their way into our uh, belief structure. It was made easier, but this is what happened. Church and state coexist, you see. They were always supposed to be separate because the church deals with minds and and the uh, souls of people and the inner um, essence of a person, and the state deals with uh, the, the workings of how do we make this country better and all that. So they were supposed to be separate. But they've always been, church and state has always travelled hand in hand because they've always sent in the church first to subdue the people. And then that is how the um, the empire building would make their way. It, it's happened all around this wonderful earth of ours, with indigenous people. If you can attract their minds and their hearts to something that they are similarly um, within their belief structure, well, you've got your foot in the door. But this is what it is. When we talk about the belief in creator, the creator is foremost. Mm. And the foremost workings of how, what we would put forward in ceremonies and in our speech 
and in our handing down of what is right and what is wrong, how to behave amongst one another. Them things were already cemented. The church actually turned around and started to restructure and said, no, you've got to believe in our brand of faith, not yours, therefore branded as heathens, pagans, all that stuff. That, that was the dynamics of the church at the time, is that not their, not our understanding of the Creator, but their understanding, and uh, we know what happened, uh, what happened when any time what uh, big hours of religion, what they've done, how they've done it, and the atrocities that, uh, and the, well, the, the legacy of the atrocities are still with us today. So when we talk about the um, uh, how Dad and his ministry, I'll put it together in one word, in one sentence, a couple of words. Dad said something to this effect. He said, I have come to heal a people who are broken in spirit. He knew that these things um, were occurring in the minds and hearts of our people because we were broken. And where you break a, a human being, you break them in their body, you break them in the mind, you break them in their spirit. And the church was part of that, to reshape and to remodel what we believed in because we lived as Adam and Eve, remember. We lived closeless. We lived with the goodness and the blessing of the land, what it could provide for us. And these things were fundamental to us. But the church came along ready to reframe that thinking. And I think that's where Dad uh, fell into uh, loggerheads with them, butthead with them. They couldn't understand that this, this, this black man here, he has a faith and a belief too that has far surpassed what you brought here. Couldn't fit it in. Square, uh, square peg in a round hole. So they sacked him. Mm. And his and one of his parting words were, is that if Jesus was alive today, he would be out there among the people. Mm. And that is what I'm doing. I'm out there among our people. But they couldn't see that. The life and legacy of Pastor Don Brady. If you've just joined in, you're listening to Let's Talk with Uncle Graham Brady. Um, I'm... I think the other thing I want to yarn you about is, um, you know, oftentimes um, when we think about the critical black consciousness, uh, the way black fellas get demonised for insisting upon a black humanity is that um, we're just critical, haven't, don't come with solutions, haven't built anything. But your father's legacy in terms of what he created, particularly here amongst the Brisbane blacks in bringing back dance, culture and ceremony, can you tell us a bit about what it is that he built here and its impact in this place? Well, well, that that, that was part of that, that understanding of, of how, how we um, uh, uh, our thoughts toward the Creator. Because in ceremony, you have uh, your paint up means something, your your dance means something, the 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 songs mean something, and they usually are obeisance um, driven back to back to the Creator. So. In our particular way, and all Aboriginal people had their own way of of ceremony. Well, that was the revival of of um, of, of dance and uh, uh, song and language in Brisbane. That's what we bought. When I say we, because we, uh, it was Dad who taught us our Goya Langi language, uh, uh, some of our Tinapira language, and he was saying, "said We must never forget this because that is who you are." You're Aboriginal, and we must remember this. It's part of your makeup, 
part of your structure in essence. So we were taught at a young age. We and then taught others as we were growing up. And um, over 50-something years now that, that we've always shared our Gogo Yalangi uh, heritage mm. uh, because um, I think one of the main factors of where there was a shutdown among our people, especially with the practice of the culture, is that, that it was beaten out of them. Mm. Well, uh, you got to fight against that. And the best way is you, you, you go front and centre and you tell them, no, this has never died. And we were used in that fashion when we were little. So Dad brought his, his Gogo Yalangi culture, instilled it in us, and we reflected that out and taught many others today. A real point of, um, uh, should I say, an example. It's very simple, this example. Shagaleg. Mm. Imbala, we call him. Dance of the Butterfly. That is a Cape York movement. Cape York people. That is our movement. That's how you signify the dances from Cape York. Well, Shagaleg is all over the country now. <laughs> and we... It is because, and this is not a brag, it is not a sky. We've seen it happen because we knew we had to uh, take up what Dad told us. Go and teach them. Mm. Teach them to stand up again. Don't be shamed. Don't be frightened. Yeah, all over country and in nightclubs too, that shake leg, everywhere. Yeah, shake leg everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and you know, so I remember hearing yarn, I maybe got it wrong, but I remember hearing yarn about um, Pastor Don um, getting mobbed to dance publicly. Um, here mm. and initially mob ridiculing dance. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, plenty of ridicule. Mm, and, you know, my five children, um, I trace their dance, their ability to dance and to learn dance uh, mm. through your father's legacy um, because mm. they had the good fortune to dance with Tyson family, Googie Lungy dancers, um, mm-hmm. but also do new knuckle dances um, and the influence of uh, Brother Josh Walker. Um, yes. And you know you trace that lineage, lineage, lineage. Mm. Um, they only know that because yes. of mm. this. No, no, it's fine because that was the 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 what, what was uh, implemented to us was that teach them how to stand up and tell them to go look for theirs. Mm. It's there. Somebody still know what some you know, even though it's fractured and it's scattered and you know, and you have to pick up a little bit of. Uh, pieces here, little bit of pieces there. It's still there. It has not died, and that was that was our commission, you could say, from Dad. Teach them to stand up. Teach them not to be shamed. Tell them to go look for theirs. Mm-hmm. I remember. Um, yeah, I remember Uncle Joe Guy talking about um, when we were doing a writing retreat, and he was telling the yarn about. I think it was a newspaper article where Joe Bjorka Peterson had made the statement that there's no culture. Mm. Aboriginal yep. people in Queensland have no culture. Was it something like that? That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's that, that's the shallow uh, uh, view of of what was there. It it came through that that white Australia policy. You know, the backlers are dying out now. So uh, therefore, we we'll only see you know remnants of it. Mm. Well, what has developed now? Every mm. every family mm-hmm. is out there expressing themselves. Mm. I love how um, you know. Tell us, tell us who we are, and we'll tell, we'll show you otherwise. Um, sometimes these, and that's why you know. Sometimes we take the hits around uh, racial violence and discrimination, and and people are like, oh, I don't know how you cope with this or how you. It's for me, it's a motivator. Um, yeah. uh, I'm driven by spite a little bit, um, and so, so I get 
I guess I get um, motivated and I, and I just, I, I love that story because it was affirming for me to go, well, you know, when, when they um, come for you, that's when you stand up, um, you know, and not see it as a, just accept it or, you know, um, hmm. take it on. And this was at a time of the acts, assimilation, uh, policing with impunity, um, uh, and he stood up. Um, and often he was on his own. Um, and I noticed in the newspaper cuttings, the Courier Mail set out to find contrary voices mm-hmm. to <laughs> Pastor Don's position, uh, but that didn't deter him. Um, no. Yeah, he forgave and he continued. Well, what's that the lyrics of um, Uncle Joe there? Um, nothing can bring him down? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, nothing can bring him down. So what, but, but he, what, so what he had, he had that understanding that was taught by uh, our grandfather to him. This is under under that law structure, is that you've got to be respectful of people. Where you go to another man's country, you've got to be respectful. The, the, the man, this, this is the, the golden rule. When you go into another man's country, you shut up, sit down and listen. You've got to take in who would place you in, who people you surround yourself, and you gather their understanding and you tell them about you secondly. So the respect was a big factor in in um, Dad having to to be accepted by the uh, Brisbane community, we could say, at the time, and the surrounding areas. It was an acceptance first. He did not come here and just started preaching and, you know, having his collar on back to front and everybody respecting him as a preacher. No, their respect had to be gained first. Until you, before you open your mouth, you've got to chuck a respect, then the respect come back. Absolutely. And the thing that um, I guess strikes me in the, in the, what we, the year that was last year with the, the referendum on The Voice and that conversation, there was a lot of belittling blackfellas who had questions about the promise and the premise of the whole thing. Um, and there were all these, this lecturing to blackfellas about what sovereignty is, and they often frame that conversation in the context of constitutional law. And when I listen to you speak, this is sovereignty right here. It is embodied and enacted by blackfellas. It is not something that can be known through um, by the constitutional lawyers. It's known by blackfellas. No, no, they have no understanding of uh, human law. See, see mm. the sad thing about feudalism, where it all, all came from, capitalism came out of feudalism, is that uh, uh, the, the landlords and, and, and the ones in power uh, had in subjection a, you know, a, a, a vast amount of people. So when that happens there, you cannot have have ones saying that they can, um, I'm talking about the constitutional lawyers and the constitution, saying this is the law fit into it. Mm. No, that cannot happen. They knew it couldn't happen either. Mm. But where the, the deviousness took place, they didn't recognise our law. Mm. They didn't recognise that for what it is. And I think that's, uh, it could be a little bit of a oh, thing with uh, why the defeat of uh, that voice referendum is that they still don't understand. They, they, I don't think they'll have the, 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 the mind because they're, the way our, our Western uh, system is arranged is through force and they force things on people. 
And it was like the boys had to be forced into their constitution for it to be accepted. Maybe Noli should have went and talked to more people. I don't know. But um, I, I think the main thing is is that uh, we are still of one mind and we will always prevail uh, no matter what circumstance is uh, put up against us. Uh, and uh, hopefully our younger ones will be able to take on board these fundamentals, you know, because the fundamentals lead into the structure of how you behave, you know, to teach a respect has to come from action. How did, how did these uh, older ones, even right back to our ancestors, how did they behave? This is one point of uh, reference. In the Cook's diary, they got there. He's got his opinion on how things were. And when he, uh, there were Google images in Cooktown. And then we have the, the uh, story of Google images. So you got Cook's story, his diary, and you got the uh, handing down of the oral history. Now, this is what our people saw. When they sent smoke signal to, to uh, Captain Cook, they lit a lot of fires, burned grass, to let Captain Cook know that we see him. We see him. Gugu Yalangi was there too. We see you. That's why we were lighting the smoke, to let you know we're here. So when they rode in, you know, on, on, on that longboat or whatever it was, came in, Aboriginal people was there on the beach to meet him. And the first thing they said to him, who are you? Where are you from? <laughs> Man. And yet they couldn't understand that. <laughs> you know, there was no welcome to country. was <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? Who are you, Mob? Uh -uh. It's, it's, it's very generic. It's, it's, it's just an inquisitive way how, how we react. Well, hey, hey, brother, where are you from? Well, it was the same thing that applied. And they shot him. They started firing rifle um, musket rounds over their head because they were there on the beach to meet him. Mm. In the simple act and gesture of uh, uh, not a greeting, all welcoming, but who are you, Mob? Mm. That's all it was. So that's why constitutional law is. I married that with what's happening today. Boys can't get through. They still cannot mm. get it. But our people, regardless of whether the Western system understands us, and I'm pretty sure that they're open minded people within the mechanisms of it all, but it's up to us to remember these things and pass it on to our, our kids. Whatever the system is doing to our kids now, we're going to take reins of it and we're going to bring them back to, to the understanding that we're respectful people. And the first people you respect is your family first mm. and that respect radiates out to others. Mm. We've trapped a lot of time in this yarn and yeah. I, it's got me thinking between, you know, 67 referendum and the one that we, the failed one from last year, and as I listen to you talk about the treatment of blackfellas, you know, first coming into the city and, and, and how overt the violence was. Um, and I'm curious, when you look at things today, whether you, how you see change, because I remember, I think it was Gary Foley once said, Maybe it was that clan session, one of the conversations we had. I think you were down around that time. He had a, a, a take on progress saying that things are still as bad as, but they've, it's kind of more hidden. People are not 
And I'm just wondering where you see in terms of over the last 50 years or so since that other referendum around mm. this, this black consciousness when we think about there are a mob who didn't understand the act, the violence of it, to today's current mainstreaming and Indigenous affairs and the new paternalism and the closing the gap, whether you see it's, there's a difference here or are we still in that same fight for a critical black consciousness? Probably the best way to explain this, I was just talking with a nephew the other day, sitting down, and um, see, our ancestor, we can never go back to that way. We can't go back to that way anymore now. So people around my age, uh, 60, 70 plus, all that stuff into the 80s and 90s, we're the last of their old ancestor, our generation. Mm. Now you have a generation that has adapted, been absorbed, and are taking up the traits. Mm. So all these things are at play. We are the last of that old ancestor generation, um, people around my age. So we can never bring that one back, but we can lead something with these ones who are there to trot in the future. Mm. You know, they will say, oh, walk in my footsteps. No, you cannot. This generation, whatever they call G, Gen Z, Y, or whatever, mm. I, don't, I don't care. It's just that this is my, um, I, I frame it like this. My children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. That generation, that old footprint has gone now. They've got to make new footprint, and they've got to make sure that they add here, and this is where the old legacy come in, to the fundamentals of what's been proven. I won't say taught or what has been through action, it's what has been proven, because that's what challenge you mean. This is the way it is. This is what has, is the product of what happened back then. Yeah, that's the best way I could, a message to our younger ones is that, no, you can't go back. That, that, old, that old footprint, is gone now. And a lot of people might disagree with me and say, no, it's still alive. But uh, this is the kicker right here. You talk more English than you do talk down language. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. Yalanya. This book is being launched this Friday at the State Library of Queensland at 11 o'clock till 2. We will be there. Mm-hmm. Biggest mob going to be there. Um, and yeah. we're buying up this book because, yeah, this book is a must read. It's a must read for blackfellas and it's it's a book that needs to be in every Indigenous studies curricula mm-hmm. um, mm. because, yeah, I, you know, when I reflect on um, the, the stories that, that I, I know, of her, I've heard them but I haven't read them. And mm. this is the importance of black scholarship, black writing, um, is yeah. to leave the, these these texts, these learnings, this evidence for our next generation to yeah. make their own mark. Chelsea, Chelsea, it's like the old painting that still exists, the mm. old ancestor painting. It's the same thing. This is what has been left to you, mm. translated in the best way you know how. But be honest with yourself. Mm. Be truthful with yourself, and also the main thing, get along with others, black and white, it does not matter. This is not a racial issue. This is a human being issue mm. that we are all on, on, in, on uh, should I say, on the journey of. We got to form an understanding between, uh, between ourselves first. We cannot be um, uh, factionalized. If we can uh, come together, as I said from the outset, unification is created and we have to go back how the best way we can come together what is the best form of creating that to happen so um that's about as far as i can 
talk to for now. <laughs> the power and beauty of a black humanity right there. Um, thank, yeah. thank you so much, Uncle Graham, uh, for um, coming on today's show and we can't wait to celebrate the launch of this most vital text and we thank you for sharing these stories today mm. and, and for leaving um, this legacy uh, for may, us. May, to may I just tell the people, uh, the door is open at 10 o'clock and it starts at 11. Hey, mm. yeah, I like a, I like an hour running time, and you know you got to be there early to catch up and um, lots of yarns and laughs beforehand. Uh, we can't wait to celebrate celebrate this text, and um, we'll see you Mob it's Friday. Opening, yeah, it's open. It's opening the door early for Black Friday time. See? That's a good thing. We still run on Black Friday. Hey, you got to take it in consideration. Okay, I'm going to be there at ten o'clock. We'll see you then. Thank you. Uncle. Thank you.
Friday at 9am on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au, proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.